Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Part 23 of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 23. Wanted to be near Abe. It was Lincoln's custom to hold an informal reception once a week, each caller taking his turn. Upon one of these eventful days, an old friend from Illinois stood in line for almost an hour. At last he was so near the president his voice could reach him, and calling out to his old associate, he startled everyone by exclaiming, "'Hello, Abe, how are you? I'm in line and have come for an orifice, too.' Lincoln singled out the man with a stentorian voice, and recognizing a particularly old friend, one whose wife had befriended him at a peculiarly trying time, the president responded to his greeting in a cordial manner, and told him to hang on to himself and not kick the traces, keep in line and you'll soon get here. They met and shook hands with the old fervor and renewed their friendship. The informal reception over, Lincoln sent for his old friend, and the latter began to urge his claims. After having given him some good advice, Lincoln kindly told him he was incapable of holding any such position as he asked for. The disappointment of the Illinois friend was plainly shown, and with a perceptible tremor in his voice he said, "'Martha's dead, the gal is married, and I've got Jim the forty. Then, looking at Lincoln, he came a little nearer and almost whispered, "'I knowed I wasn't educated enough to get the place, but I kind of want to stay where I can see Abe Lincoln.' He was given employment in the White House grounds. Afterwards, the President said, "'These brief interviews, stripped of even the semblance of ceremony, give me a better insight into the real character of the person and his true reason for seeking one.' got his foot in it. William H. Seward, idol of the Republicans of the East, six months after Lincoln had made his divided house speech, delivered an address at Rochester, New York, containing this famous sentence, 
it is an irrepressible conflict between opposing and enduring forces and it means that the united states must and will sooner or later become either entirely a slaveholding nation or entirely a free labor nation seward who had simply followed in lincoln's steps was defeated for the presidential nomination at the republican national convention of eighteen sixty because he was too radical and lincoln who was still radicaler was named saved by a letter the chief interest of the illinois campaign of eighteen forty three lay in the race for congress in the capital district which was between hardin fiery eloquent and impetuous democrat and lincoln plain practical and ennobled whig the world knows the result lincoln was elected it is not so much his election as the manner in which he secured his nomination with which we have to deal before that ever memorable spring lincoln vacillated between the courts of springfield rated as a plain honest logical whig with no ambition higher politically than to occupy some good home office late in the fall of eighteen forty two his name began to be mentioned in connection with congressional aspirations which fact greatly annoyed the leaders of his political party who had already selected as the whig candidate e d baker afterward the gallant colonel who fell so bravely and died such an honorable death on the battlefield of ball's bluff despite all efforts of his opponents within his party the name of the gaunt rail splitter was hailed with acclaim by the masses to whom he had endured himself by his witticisms honest tongue and quaint philosophy when on the stump or mingling with them in their homes the convention which met in early spring in the city of springfield was to be composed of the usual number of delegates the contest for the nomination was spirited and exciting a few weeks before the meeting of the convention the fact was found by the leaders that the advantage lay with lincoln and that unless they pulled some very fine wires nothing could save baker they attempted to play the game that was so often won by convincing delegates under instructions for lincoln to violate them and vote for baker they had apparently succeeded the best laid plans of mice and men gang off a glay so it was in this case two days before the convention lincoln received an intimation of this and late at night wrote the following letter the letter was addressed to martin morris who resided at petersburg an intimate friend of his and by him circulated among those who were instructed for him at the county convention it had the desired effect the convention met the scheme of the conspirators miscarried lincoln was nominated and made a vigorous canvass and was triumphantly elected thus paving the way for his more extended and brilliant conquests this letter lincoln had often told his friends gave him ultimately the chief magistracy of the nation he has also said that had he been beaten before the convention he would have been forever obscured the following is a verbatim copy of the epistle april fourteen eighteen forty three friend morris i have heard it intimated that baker is trying to get you or miles or both of you to violate the instructions of the meeting that appointed you and to go for him 
i have insisted and still insist that this cannot be true sure baker would not do the like as well might hardin ask me to vote for him in the convention again it is said there will be an attempt to get instructions in your county requiring you to go for baker this is all wrong upon the same rule why might i not fly from the decision against me at sagamon and get up instructions to their delegates to go for me there are at least twelve hundred whigs in the county that took no part and yet i would as soon stick my head in the fire as attempt it besides if any one should get the nomination by such extraordinary means all harmony in the district would inevitably be lost honest whigs and very nearly all of them are honest would not quietly abide such enormities i repeat such an attempt on baker's part cannot be true write me at springfield how the matter is don't show or speak of this letter a lincoln mr morris did show the letter and mr lincoln always thanked his stars that he did his favorite poem mr lincoln's favorite poem was oh why should the spirit of mortal be proud written by william knox a scotchman although mr lincoln never knew the author's name he once said to a friend this poem has been a great favorite with me for years it was first shown to me when a young man by a friend i afterwards saw it and cut it from a newspaper and learned it by heart i would give a great deal to know who wrote it but i have never been able to ascertain oh why should the spirit of mortal be proud like a swift fleeing meteor a fast flying cloud a flash of the lightning a break of the wave he passeth from life to his rest in the grave the leaves of the oak and the willow shall fade be scattered around and together be laid and the young and the old and the low and the high shall moulder to dust and together shall lie the infant a mother attended and loved the mother that infant's affection who proved the husband that mother and infant who blessed each all are away to their dwellings of rest the maid on whose cheek on whose brow in whose eye shone beauty and pleasure her triumphs are by and the memory of those who loved her and praised are alike from the minds of the living erased the hand of the king that the sceptre hath borne the brow of the priest that the mitre hath worn the eye of the sage and the heart of the brave are hidden and lost in the depths of the grave the peasant whose lot was to sow and to reap the herdsman who climbed with his goats up the steep the beggar who wandered in search of his bread have faded away like the grass that we tread the saint who enjoyed the communion of heaven the sinner who dared to remain unforgiven the wise and the foolish the guilty and just have quietly mingled their bones in the dust so the multitude goes like the flower or the weed that withers away to let others succeed so the multitude comes even those we behold to repeat every tale that has often been told for we are the same our fathers have been we see the same sights our fathers have seen we drink the same stream we view the same sun and run the same course our fathers have run the thoughts we are thinking our fathers would think from the death we are shrinking our fathers would shrink 
to the life we are clinging they also would cling but it speeds from us all like a bird on the wing they loved but the story we cannot unfold they scorned but the heart of the haughty is cold they grieved but no wail from their slumber will come they joyed but the tongue of their gladness is dumb they died ay they died and we things that are now that walk on the turf that lies o'er their brow and make in their dwellings a transient abode meet the things that they met on their pilgrimage road yea hope and despondency pleasure and pain are mingled together in sunshine and rain and the smile and the tear the song and the dirge still follow each other like surge upon surge tis the wink of an eye tis the draught of a breath from the blossom of health to the paleness of death from the gilded saloon to the bier and the shroud oh why should the spirit of mortal be proud five-legged calf president lincoln had great doubt as to his right to emancipate the slaves under the war power in discussing the question he used to like the case to that of the boy who when asked how many legs his calf would have if he called its tail a leg replied five to which the prompt response was made that calling the tail a leg would not make it a leg a stagecoach story the following is told by thomas h nelson of terre haute indiana who was appointed minister to chile by lincoln judge abram hammond afterwards governor of indiana and myself arranged to go from terre haute to indianapolis in a stagecoach as we stepped in we discovered that the entire back seat was occupied by a long lank individual whose head seemed to protrude from one end of the coach and his feet from the other he was the sole occupant and was sleeping soundly hammond slapped him familiarly on the shoulder and asked him if he had chartered the coach that day certainly not and he at once took the front seat politely giving us the place of honor and comfort an odd-looking fellow he was with a twenty-five cent hat without vest or cravat regarding him as a good subject for merriment we perpetrated several jokes he took them all with utmost innocence and good nature and joined in the laugh although at his own expense after an astounding display of wordy pyrotechnics the dazed and bewildered stranger asked what will be the upshot of this comet business late in the evening we reached indianapolis and hurried to browning's hotel losing sight of the stranger altogether we retired to our room to brush our clothes in a few minutes i descended to the portico and there descried our long gloomy fellow-traveller in the centre of an admiring group of lawyers among whom were judges mclean and huntington albert s white and richard w thompson who seemed to be amused and interested in the story he was telling i inquired of browning the landlord who he was abraham lincoln of illinois a member of congress was his response i was thunderstruck at the announcement i hastened upstairs and told hammond the startling news and together we emerged from the hotel by a back door and went down an alley to another house thus avoiding further contact with our distinguished fellow-traveller years afterward when the president-elect was on his way to washington i was in the same hotel looking over the distinguished party 
when a long arm reached to my shoulder and a shrill voice exclaimed hello nelson do you think after all the whole world is going to follow the darn thing off the words were my own in answer to his question in the stagecoach the speaker was abraham lincoln the four hundred gathered there lincoln had periods while clerking in the new salem grocery store during which there was nothing for him to do and was therefore in circumstances that made laziness almost inevitable had people come to him for goods they would have found him willing to sell them he sold all that he could doubtless the store soon became the social center of the village if the people did not care or were unable to buy goods they liked to go where they could talk with their neighbors and listen to stories these lincoln gave them in abundance and of a rare sort it was in these gatherings of the four hundred at the village store that lincoln got his training as a debater public questions were discussed there daily and nightly and lincoln always took a prominent part in the discussions many of the debaters came to consider abe lincoln as about the smartest man in the village only level-headed men wanted lincoln wanted men of level heads for important commands not infrequently he gave his general advice he appreciated hooker's bravery dash and activity but was fearful of the results of what he denominated swashing around this was one of his telegrams to hooker and now beware of rashness beware of rashness but with energy and sleepless vigilance go forward and give us victories his faith in the monitor when the confederate ironclad merrimac was sent against the union vessels in hampton roads president lincoln expressed his belief in the monitor to captain fox the adviser of captain erickson who constructed the monitor we have three of the most effective vessels in hampton roads and any number of small craft that will hang on the stern of the merrimac like small dogs on the haunches of a bear they may not be able to tear her down but they will interfere with the comfort of her voyage her trial trip will not be a pleasure trip i am certain we have had a big share of bad luck lately but i do not believe the future has any such misfortunes in store for us as you anticipate said captain fox if the merrimac does not sink our ships who is to prevent her from dropping her anchor in the potomac where that steamer lies pointing to a steamer at anchor below the long bridge and throwing her hundred pound shells into this room or battering down the walls of the capitol the almighty captain answered the president excitedly but without the least affectation i expect setbacks defeats we have had them and shall have them they are common to all wars but i have not the slightest fear of any result which shall fatally impair our military and naval strength or give other powers any right to interfere in our quarrel the destruction of the capital would do both i do not fear it for this is god's fight and he will win it in his own good time he will take care that our enemies will not push us too far speaking of ironclads said the president you do not seem to take the little monitor into account i believe in the monitor and her commander if captain warden does not give a good account of the monitor and of himself 
i shall have made a mistake in following my judgment for the first time since i have been here captain i have not made a mistake in following my clear judgment of men since this war began i followed that judgment when i gave warden the command of the monitor i would make the appointment over again to-day the monitor should be in hampton roads now she left new york eight days ago after the captain had again presented what he considered the possibilities of failure the president replied oh no no captain i respect your judgment as you have reason to know but this time you are all wrong the monitor was one of my inspirations i believed in her firmly when that energetic contractor first showed me ericsson's plans captain ericsson's plain but rather enthusiastic demonstration made my conversion permanent it was called a floating battery then i called it a raft i caught some of the inventor's enthusiasm and it has been growing upon me i thought then and i am confident now it is just what we want i am sure that the monitor is still afloat and that she will yet give a good account of herself sometimes i think she may be the veritable sling with a stone that will yet smite the merrimack philistine in the forehead soon was the president's judgment verified for the fight of the monitor and merrimack changed all the conditions of naval warfare after the victory was gained the presiding captain fox and others went on board the monitor and captain warden was requested by the president to narrate the history of the encounter captain warden did so in a modest manner and apologized for not being able better to provide for his guests the president smilingly responded some charitable people say that old bourbon is an indispensable element in the fighting qualities of some of our generals in the field but captain after the account that we have heard to-day no one will say that any dutch courage is needed on board the monitor it never has been sir modestly observed the captain captain fox then gave a description of what he saw of the engagement and described it as indescribably grand then turning to the president he continued now standing here on the deck of this battle-scarred vessel the first genuine ironclad the victor in the first fight of ironclads let me make a confession and perform an act of simple justice i never fully believed in armored vessels until i saw this battle i know all the facts which united to give us the monitor i withhold no credit from captain ericsson her inventor but i know that the country is principally indebted for the construction of the vessel to president lincoln and for the success of her trial to captain warden her commander her only imperfection at one time a certain major hill charged lincoln with making defamatory remarks regarding mrs hill hill was insulting in his language to lincoln who never lost his temper when he saw his chance to edge a word in lincoln denied emphatically using the language or anything like that attributed to him he entertained he insisted a high regard for mrs hill and the only thing he knew to her discredit was the fact that she was major hill's wife the old lady's prophecy among those who called to congratulate mr lincoln upon his nomination for president was an old lady very plainly dressed 
she knew mr lincoln but mr lincoln did not at first recognize her then she undertook to recall to his memory certain incidents connected with his ride upon the circuit especially his dining at her house upon the road at different times then he remembered her and her home having fixed her own place in his recollection she tried to recall to him a certain scanty dinner of bread and milk that he once ate at her house he could not remember it on the contrary he only remembered that he had always fared well at her house well she said one day you came along after we had got through dinner and we had eaten up everything and i could give you nothing but a bowl of bread and milk and you ate it and when you got up you said it was good enough for the president of the united states the good woman had come in from the country making a journey of eight or ten miles to relate to mr lincoln this incident which in her mind had doubtless taken the form of a prophecy mr lincoln placed the honest creature at her ease chatted with her of old times and dismissed her in the most happy frame of mind how the town of lincoln illinois was named the story of naming the town of lincoln the county seat of logan county illinois is thus given on good authority the first railroad had been built through the county and a station was about to be located there lincoln virgil hitchcock colonel r b latham and several others were sitting on a pile of ties and talking about moving a county seat from mount pulaski mr lincoln rose and started to walk away when colonel latham said lincoln if you will help us to get the county seat here we will call the place lincoln all right latham he replied colonel latham then deeded him a lot on the west side of the courthouse and he owned it at the time he was elected president old jeff's big nightmare jeff davis had a large and threatening nightmare in november eighteen sixty four and what he saw in his troubled dreams was the long and lanky figure of abraham lincoln who had just been endorsed by the people of the united states for another term in the white house at washington the cartoon reproduced here is from the issue of frank leslie's illustrated newspaper of december third eighteen sixty four it being entitled jeff davis's november nightmare davis had been told that mcclellan the war is a failure candidate for the presidency would have no difficulty whatever in defeating lincoln that negotiations with the confederate officials for the cessation of hostilities would be entered into as soon as mcclellan was seated in the chief executive's chair that the confederacy would in all probability be recognized as an independent government by the washington administration that the sacred institution of slavery would continue to do business at the old stand that the confederacy would be one of the great nations of the world and have all the state rights and other things it wanted with absolutely no interference whatever upon the part of the north therefore lincoln's re-election was a rough rude shock to davis who had not prepared himself for such an event six months from the date of that nightmare dream he was a prisoner in the hands of the union forces and the confederacy was a thing of the past lincoln's last official act probably the last official act of president lincoln's life was the signing of the commission reappointing alvin saunders governor of nebraska 
i saw mr lincoln regarding the matter said governor saunders and he told me to go home that he would attend to it all right i left washington on the morning of the fourteenth and while en route the news of the assassination on the evening of the same day reached me i immediately wired back to find out what had become of my commission and was told that the room had not been opened when it was opened the document was found lying on the desk mr lincoln signed it just before leaving for the theatre that fatal evening and left it lying there unfolded a note was found below the document as follows rather a lengthy commission bestowing upon mr alvin saunders the official authority of governor of the territory of nebraska then came lincoln's signature which with one exception that of a penciled message on the back of a card sent up by a friend as mr lincoln was dressing for the theatre was the very last signature of the martyred president the lad needed the sleep a personal friend of president lincoln is authority for this i called on him one day in the early part of the war he had just written a pardon for a young man who had been sentenced to be shot for sleeping at his post he remarked as he read it to me i could not think of going into eternity with the blood of the poor young man on my skirts then he added it is not to be wondered at that a boy raised on a farm probably in the habit of going to bed at dark should when required to watch fall asleep and i cannot consent to shoot him for such an act massa lincoln like de lord by the act of emancipation president lincoln built for himself forever the first place in the affections of the african race in this country the love and reverence manifested for him by many of these people has on some occasions almost reached adoration one day colonel mckay of new york who had been one of a committee to investigate the condition of the freedmen upon his return from hilton head and beaufort called upon the president and in the course of the interview said that up to the time of the arrival among them in the south of the union forces they had no knowledge of any other power their masters fled upon the approach of our soldiers and this gave the slaves the conception of a power greater than their masters exercised this power they called massa lincoln colonel mckay said their place of worship was a large building they called the praise house and the leader of the meeting a venerable black man was known as the praise man on a certain day when there was quite a large gathering of the people considerable confusion was created by different persons attempting to tell who and what massa lincoln was in the midst of the excitement the white-headed leader commanded silence brethren said he you don't know nuzzin what you're talking about now you just listen to me massa lincoln everywhere he know everything then solemnly looking up he added he walked the earth like the lord how lincoln took the news one of lincoln's most dearly loved friends united states senator edward d baker of oregon colonel of the seventy-first pennsylvania a former townsman of mr lincoln was killed at the battle of ball's bluff in october eighteen sixty one the president went to general mcclellan's headquarters to hear the news and a friend thus described the effect it had upon him 
we could hear the click of the telegraph in the adjoining room and low conversation between the president and general mcclellan succeeded by silence excepting the click click of the instrument which went on with its tale of disaster five minutes passed and then mr lincoln unattended with bowed head and tears rolling down his furrowed cheeks his face pale and wan his breast heaving with emotion passed through the room he almost fell as he stepped into the street we sprang involuntarily from our seats to render assistance but he did not fall with both hands pressed upon his heart he walked down the street not returning the salute of the sentinel pacing his beat before the door end of part twenty three part twenty four of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this librivox recording is in the public domain part twenty four profanity as a safety valve lincoln never indulged in profanity but confessed that when lee was beaten at malvern hill after seven days of fighting and richmond but twelve miles away was at mcclellan's mercy he felt very much like swearing when he learned that the union general had retired to harrison's landing lee was so confident his opponent would not go to richmond that he took his army into maryland a move he would not have made had an energetic fighting man been in mcclellan's place it is true mcclellan followed and defeated lee in the bloodiest battle of the war antietam afterwards following him into virginia but lincoln could not bring himself to forgive the general's inaction before richmond why we won at gettysburg president lincoln said to general sickles just after the victory of gettysburg the fact is general in the stress and pinch of the campaign there i went to my room and got down on my knees and prayed god almighty for victory at gettysburg i told him that this was his country and the war was his war but that we really couldn't stand another fredericksburg or chancellorsville and then and there i made a solemn vow with my maker that if he would stand by you boys at gettysburg i would stand by him and he did and i will and after this i felt that god almighty had taken the whole thing into his hands had to wait for him president lincoln having arranged to go to new york was late for his train much to the disgust of those who were to accompany him and all were compelled to wait several hours until the next train steamed out of the station president lincoln was much amused at the dissatisfaction displayed and then ventured the remark that the situation reminded him of a little story said he out in illinois a convict who had murdered his cellmate was sentenced to be hanged on the day set for the execution crowds lined the roads leading to the spot where the scaffold had been erected and there was much jostling and excitement the condemned man took matters coolly and as one batch of perspiring anxious men rushed past the cart in which he was riding he called out don't be in a hurry boys you've got plenty of time there won't be any fun until i get there that's the condition of things now concluded the president there won't be any fun at new york until i get there president and cabinet joined in prayer 
on the day of the news of general lee's surrender at appomattox courthouse was received so an intimate friend of president lincoln relates the cabinet meeting was held an hour earlier than usual neither the president nor any member of the cabinet was able for a time to give utterance to his feelings at the suggestion of mr lincoln all dropped on their knees and offered in silence and in tears their humble and heartfelt acknowledgments to the almighty for the triumph he had granted to the national cause believed he was a christian mr lincoln was much impressed with the devotion and earnestness of purpose manifested by a certain lady of the christian commission during the war and on one occasion after she had discharged the object of her visit said to her madam i have formed a high opinion of your christian character and now as we are alone i have a mind to ask you to give me in brief your idea of what constitutes a true religious experience the lady replied at some length stating that in her judgment it consisted of a conviction of one's own sinfulness and weakness and a personal need of the saviour for strength and support that views of mere doctrine might and would differ but when one was really brought to feel his need of divine help and to seek the aid of the holy spirit for strength and guidance it was satisfactory evidence of his having been born again this was the substance of her reply when she had concluded mr lincoln was very thoughtful for a few moments he at length said very earnestly if what you have told me is really a correct view of this great subject i think i can say with sincerity that i hope i am a christian i had lived he continued until my boy willie died without fully realizing these things that blow overwhelmed me it showed me my weakness as i had never felt it before and if i can take what you have stated as a test i think i can safely say that i know something of that change of which you speak and i will further add that it has been my intention for some time at a suitable opportunity to make a public religious profession with the help of god mr lincoln once remarked to mr noah brooks one of his most intimate personal friends i should be the most presumptuous blockhead upon this footstool if i for one day thought that i could discharge the duties which have come upon me since i came to this place without the aid and enlightenment of one who is stronger and wiser than all others he said on another occasion i am very sure that if i do not go away from here a wiser man i shall go away a better man from having learned here what a very poor sort of a man i am turned tears to smiles one night schuyler colfax left all other business to go to the white house to ask the president to respite the son of a constituent who was sentenced to be shot at davenport for desertion mr lincoln heard the story with his usual patience though he was wearied out with incessant calls and anxious for rest and then replied some of our generals complain that i impair discipline and subordination in the army by my pardons and respites but it makes me rested after a hard day's work if i can find some good excuse for saving a man's life and i go to bed happy as i think how joyous the signing of my name will make him and his family and his friends 
and with a happy smile beaming over that care-furrowed face he signed that name that saved that life lincoln's last written words as the president and mrs lincoln were leaving the white house a few minutes before eight o'clock on the evening of april fourteenth eighteen sixty five lincoln wrote this note allow mr ashman and friend to come to see me at nine o'clock a m tomorrow april fifteenth eighteen sixty five women plead for pardons one day during the war an attractively and handsomely dressed woman called on president lincoln to procure the release from prison of a relation in whom she professed the deepest interest she was a good talker and her winning ways seemed to make a deep impression on the president after listening to her story he wrote a few words on a card this woman dear stanton is a little smarter than she looks to be enclosed it in an envelope and directed her to take it to the secretary of war on the same day another woman called more humble in appearance more plainly clad it was the old story father and son both in the army the former in prison could not the latter be discharged from the army and sent home to help his mother a few strokes of the pen a gentle nod of the head and the little woman her eyes filling with tears and expressing a grateful acknowledgment her tongue could not utter passed out a lady so thankful for the release of her husband was in the act of kneeling in thankfulness get up he said don't kneel to me but thank god and go an old lady for the same reason came forward with tears in her eyes to express her gratitude good-bye mr lincoln said she i shall probably never see you again till we meet in heaven she had the president's hand in hers and he was deeply moved he instantly took her right hand in both of his and following her to the door said i am afraid with all my troubles i shall never get to the resting-place you speak of but if i do i am sure i shall find you that you wish me to get there is i believe the best wish you could make for me good-bye then the president remarked to a friend it is more than many can often say that in doing right one has made two people happy in one day speed die when i may i want it said of me by those who know me best that i have always plucked a thistle and planted a flower when i thought a flower would grow lincoln wished to see richmond the president remarked to admiral david d porter while on board the flagship malvern on the james river in front of richmond the day the city surrendered thank god that i have lived to see this it seems to me that i have been dreaming a horrid dream for four years and now the nightmare is gone i wish to see richmond spoken like a christian frederick douglass told in these words of his first interview with president lincoln i approached him with trepidation as to how this great man might receive me but one word and look from him banished all my fears and set me perfectly at ease i have often said since that meeting that it was much easier to see and converse with a great man than it was with a small man on that occasion he said douglas you need not tell me who you are mr seward has told me all about you i then saw that there was no reason to tell him my personal story however interesting it might be to myself or others so i told him at once the object of my visit 
it was to get some expression from him upon three points one equal pay to colored soldiers two their promotion when they had earned it on the battlefield three should they be taken prisoners and enslaved or hanged as jefferson davis had threatened an equal number of confederate prisoners should be executed within our lines a declaration to that effect i thought would prevent the execution of the rebel threat to all but the last president lincoln assented he argued however that neither equal pay nor promotion could be granted at once he said that in view of existing prejudices it was a great step forward to employ colored troops at all that it was necessary to avoid everything that would offend this prejudice and increase opposition to the measure he detailed the steps by which white soldiers were reconciled to the employment of colored soldiers how these were first employed as laborers how it was thought they should not be armed or uniformed like white soldiers how they should only be made to wear a peculiar uniform how they should be employed to hold forts and arsenals in sickly locations and not enter the field like other soldiers with all these restrictions and limitations he easily made me see that much would be gained when the colored man loomed before the country as a full-fledged united states soldier to fight flourish or fall in defense of the united republic the great soul of lincoln halted only when he came to the point of retaliation the thought of hanging men in cold blood even though the rebels should murder a few of the colored prisoners was a horror from which he shrank oh douglas i cannot do that if i could get hold of the actual murderers of colored prisoners i would retaliate but to hang those who have no hand in such murders i cannot the contemplation of such an act brought to his countenance such an expression of sadness and pity that it made it hard for me to press my point though i told him it would tend to save rather than destroy life he however insisted that this work of blood once begun would be hard to stop that such violence would beget violence he argued more like a disciple of christ than a commander-in-chief of the army and navy of a warlike nation already involved in a terrible war how sad and strange the fate of this great and good man the saviour of his country the embodiment of human charity whose heart though strong was as tender as a heart of childhood who always tempered justice with mercy who sought to supplant the sword with counsel of reason to suppress passion by kindness and moderation who had a sigh for every human grief and a tear for every human woe should at last perish by the hand of a desperate assassin against whom no thought of malice had ever entered his heart lincoln goes in when the quakers are out one of the campaign songs of eighteen sixty which will never be forgotten was whittier's the quakers are out give the flags to the winds set the hills all aflame make way for the man with the patriarch's name away with misgivings away with all doubt for lincoln goes in when the quakers are out speaking of this song with which he was greatly pleased one day at the white house the president said it reminds me of a little story i heard years ago out in illinois a political campaign was on and the atmosphere was kept at a high temperature 
several fights had already occurred many men having been seriously hurt and the prospects were that the result would be close one of the candidates was a professional politician with a huge wart on his nose this disfigurement having earned for him the nickname of warty his opponent was a young lawyer who wore biled shirts was shaved by a barber and had his clothes made to fit him now warty was of quaker stock and around election time made a great parade of the fact when there were no campaigns in progress he was anything but quakerish in his language or actions the young lawyer didn't know what the inside of a meeting-house looked like well the night before election day the two candidates came together at a joint debate both being on the speaker's platform the young lawyer had to speak after warty and his reputation suffered at the hands of the quaker who told the many friends present what a wicked fellow the young man was never went to church swore drank smoked and gambled after warty had finished the other arose and faced the audience i'm not a good man said he and what my opponent has said about me is true enough but i'm always the same i don't profess religion when i run for office and then turn around and associate with bad people when the campaign's over i'm no hypocrite i don't sing many psalms neither does my opponent and talking about singing i'd just like to hear my friend who is running against me sing the song for the benefit of this audience i heard him sing the night after he was nominated i yield the floor to him of course warty refused his quaker supporters grew suspicious and when they turned out at the polls the following day they voted for the wicked young lawyer so it's true that when the quakers are out the man they support is apt to go in had confidence in him but general blank asks for more men said secretary of war stanton to the president one day showing the latter a telegram from the commander named appealing for reinforcements i guess he's killed off enough men hasn't he queried the president i don't mean confederates our own men what's the use in sending volunteers down to him if they're only used to fill graves his dispatch seems to imply that in his opinion you have not the confidence in him he thinks he deserves the war secretary went on to say as he looked over the telegram again oh was the president's reply he needn't lose any of his sleep on that account just telegram him to that effect also that i don't propose to send him any more men how hominy was originated during the progress of a cabinet meeting the subject of food for the men in the army happened to come up from that the conversation changed to the study of the latin language i studied latin once said mr lincoln in a casual way were you interested in it asked mr seward the secretary of state well yes i saw some very curious things was the president's rejoinder what asked secretary seward well there's the word hominy for instance we have just ordered a lot of that stuff for the troops i see how the word originated i notice it came from the latin word homo a man when we decline homo it is homo a man hominus of man hominy for man so you see hominy being for man comes from the latin i guess those soldiers who don't know latin will get along with it all right 
though i won't rest real easy until i hear from the commissary department on it his ideas old after all one day while listening to one of the wise men who had called at the white house to unload a large cargo of advice the president interjected a remark to the effect that he had a great reverence for learning this is not president lincoln explained because i am not an educated man i feel the need of reading it is a loss to a man not to have grown up among books men of force the visitor answered can get on pretty well without books they do their own thinking instead of adopting what other men think yes said mr lincoln but books serve to show a man that those original thoughts of his aren't very new after all this was a point the caller was not willing to debate and so he cut his call short lincoln's first speech lincoln made his first speech when he was a mere boy going barefoot his trousers held up by one suspender and his shock of hair sticking through a hole in the crown of his cheap straw hat abe in company with dennis hanks attended a political meeting which was addressed by a typical stump speaker one of those loud voiced fellows who shouted at the top of his voice and waved his arms wildly at the conclusion of the speech which did not meet the views either of abe or dennis the latter declared that abe could make a better speech than that whereupon he got a dry goods box and called on abe to reply to the campaign orator lincoln threw his old straw hat on the ground and mounting the dry goods box delivered a speech which held the attention of the crowd and won him considerable applause even the campaign orator admitted that it was a fine speech and answered every point of his own oration dennis hanks who thought abe was about the greatest man that ever lived was delighted and he often told how young abe got the better of the trained campaign speaker abe wanted no sneakin around it was in eighteen thirty when abe was just twenty-one years of age that the lincoln family moved from gentryville indiana to near decatur illinois their household goods being packed in a wagon drawn by four oxen driven by abe the winter previous the latter had worked in a country store at gentryville and before undertaking the journey he invested all the money he had some thirty dollars in notions such as needles pins thread buttons and other domestic necessities these he sold to families along the route and made a profit of about one hundred per cent this mercantile adventure of his youth reminded the president of a very clever story while the members of the cabinet were one day solemnly debating a rather serious international problem the president was in the minority as was frequently the case and he was in a hole as he afterwards expressed it he didn't want to argue the points raised preferring to settle the matter in a hurry and an apt story was his only salvation suddenly the president's face brightened gentlemen said he addressing those seated at the cabinet table the situation just now reminds me of a fix i got into some thirty years or so ago when i was peddling notions on the way from indiana to illinois i didn't have a large stock but i charged large prices and i made money perhaps you don't see what i'm driving at secretary of state seward was wearing a most gloomy expression of countenance 
secretary of war stanton was savage and inclined to be morose secretary of the treasury chase was indifferent and cynical while the others of the presidential advisers resigned themselves to the hearing of the inevitable story i don't propose to argue this matter the president went on to say because arguments have no effect upon men whose opinions are fixed and whose minds are made up but this little story of mine will make some things which now are in the dark show up more clearly there was another pause and the cabinet officers maintaining their previous silence began wondering if the president himself really knew what he was driving at just before we left indiana and crossed into illinois continued mr lincoln solemnly speaking in a grave tone of voice we came across a small farmhouse full of nothing but children these ranged in years from seventeen years to seventeen months and all were in tears the mother of the family was red-headed and red-faced and the whip she held in her right hand led to the inference that she had been chastising her brood the father of the family a meek-looking mild-mannered tow-headed chap was standing in the front doorway awaiting to all appearances his turn to feel the thong i thought there wasn't much use in asking the head of that house if she wanted any notions she was too busy it was evident an insurrection had been in progress but it was pretty well quelled when i got there the mother had about suppressed it with an iron hand but she was not running any risks she kept a keen and wary eye upon all the children not forgetting an occasional glance at the old man in the doorway she saw me as i came up and from her look i thought she was of the opinion that i intended to interfere advancing to the doorway and roughly pushing her husband aside she demanded my business nothing madam i answered as gently as possible i merely dropped in as i came along to see how things were going well you needn't wait was the reply in an irritated way there's trouble here and lots of it too but i can manage my own affairs without the help of outsiders this is just a family row but i'll teach these brats their place if i have to lick the hide off every one of them i don't do much talking but i run this house and i don't want no one sneaking round trying to find out how i do it either that's the case here with us the president said in conclusion we must let the other nations know that we propose to settle our family row in our own way and teach these brats their places the seceding states if we have to lick the hides off of each and every one of them and like the old woman we don't want any sneaking around by other countries who would like to find out how we are to do it either now seward you write some diplomatic notes to that effect and the cabinet session closed didn't even need stilts as the president considered it his duty to keep in touch with all the improvements in the armament of the vessels belonging to the united states navy he was necessarily interested in the various types of these floating fortresses not only was it required of the navy department to furnish seagoing warships deep draft vessels for the great rivers and the lakes but this department also found use for little gunboats which could creep along in the shallowest of water and attack the confederates in by-places and swamps the consequence of the interest taken by mr lincoln in the navy was that he was besieged day and night by steamboat contractors each one eager to sell his product to the washington government 
all sorts of experiments were tried some being dire failures while others were more than fairly successful more than once had these tiny war vessels proved themselves of great service and the united states government had a large number of them built there was one particular contractor who bothered the president more than all the others put together he was constantly impressing upon mr lincoln the great superiority of his boats because they would run in such shallow water oh yes replied the president i've no doubt they'll run anywhere where the ground is a little moist how do you get out of this place it seems to me remarked the president one day while reading over some of the appealing telegrams sent to the war department by general mcclellan that mcclellan has been wandering around and has sort of got lost he's been hollering for help ever since he went south want somebody to come to his deliverance and get him out of the place he's got into he reminds me of the story of a man out in illinois who in company with a number of friends visited the state penitentiary they wandered all through the institution and saw everything but just about the time to depart this particular man became separated from his friends and couldn't find his way out he roamed up and down one corridor after another becoming more desperate all the time when at last he came across a convict who was looking out from between the bars of his cell door here was salvation at last hurrying up to the prisoner he hastily asked say how do you get out of this place end of part twenty four part twenty five of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 25. Tad Introduces Our Friends President Lincoln often avoided interviews with delegations representing various states, especially when he knew the objects of their errands and was aware he could not grant their requests. This was the case with several commissioners from Kentucky who were put off from day to day. They were about to give up in despair and were leaving the White House lobby, their speech being interspersed with vehement and uncomplimentary terms concerning old Abe, when Tad happened along. He caught at these words and asked one of them if they wanted to see old Abe, laughing at the same time. Yes, he replied. Wait a minute, said Tad, and rushed into his father's office. Said he, Papa, may I introduce some friends to you? His father, always indulgent and ready to make him happy, kindly said, Yes, my son, I will see your friends. Tad went to the Kentuckians again and asked a very dignified-looking gentleman of the party his name. He was told his name. He then said, Come, gentlemen, and they followed him. Leading them to the president, Tad, with much dignity, said, Papa, let me introduce to you Judge Blank of Kentucky, and quickly added, Now, Judge, you introduce the other gentleman. The introductions were gone through with, and they turned out to be the gentleman Mr. Lincoln had been avoiding for a week. Mr. Lincoln reached for the boy, took him in his lap, kissed him, and told him it was all right, and that he had introduced his friend like a little gentleman as he was tad was eleven years old at this time the president was pleased with tad's diplomacy and often laughed at the incident as he told others of it 
one day while caressing the boy he asked him why he called these gentlemen his friends well said tad i had seen them so often and they looked so good and sorry and they were from kentucky that i thought they must be our friends that is right my son said mr lincoln i would have the whole human race your friends and mine if it were possible mixed up worse than before the president told a story which most beautifully illustrated the muddled situation of affairs at the time mcclellan's fate was hanging in the balance mcclellan's work was not satisfactory but the president hesitated to remove him the general was so slow that the confederates marched all around him and to add to the dilemma the president could not find a suitable man to take mcclellan's place the latter was a political as well as a military factor his friends threatened that if he was removed many war democrats would cast their influence with the south etc it was altogether a sad mix-up and the president for a time was at his wit's end he was assailed on all sides with advice but none of it was worth acting upon this situation reminds me said the president at a cabinet meeting one day not long before the appointment of general halleck as mcclellan's successor in command of the union forces of a union man in kentucky whose two sons enlisted in the federal army his wife was of confederate sympathies his nearest neighbor was a confederate in feeling and his two sons were fighting under lee this neighbor's wife was a union woman and it nearly broke her heart to know that her sons were arrayed against the union finally the two men after each had talked the matter over with his wife agreed to obtain divorces this they did and the union man and the union woman were wedded as were the confederate man and the confederate woman the men swapped wives in short but this didn't seem to help matters any for the sons of the union woman were still fighting for the south and the sons of the confederate woman continued in the federal army the union husband couldn't get along with his union wife and the confederate husband and his confederate wife couldn't agree upon anything being forever fussing and quarreling it's the same with the army it doesn't seem worth while to secure divorces and then marry the army and mcclellan to others for they won't get along any better than they do now and there'll only be a new set of heartaches started i think we'd better wait perhaps a real fighting general will come along some of these days and then we'll all be happy if you go to mixing in a mix-up you only make the muddle worse long abe's feet protruded over george m pullman the great sleeping car builder once told a joke in which lincoln was the prominent figure in fact there wouldn't have been any joke had it not been for long abe at the time of the occurrence which was the foundation for the joke and pullman admitted that the latter was on him pullman was the conductor of his only sleeping car the latter was an experiment and pullman was doing everything possible to get the railroads to take hold of it one night said pullman in telling the story as we were about going out of chicago this was long before lincoln was what you might call a renowned man a long lean ugly man with a wart on his cheek came into the depot he paid me fifty cents and half a berth was assigned him then he took off his coat and vest and hung them up 
and they fitted the peg about as well as they fitted him then he kicked off his boots which were of surprising length turned into the berth and undoubtedly having an easy conscience was sleeping like a healthy baby before the car left the depot pretty soon along came another passenger and paid his fifty cents in two minutes he was back at me angry as a wet hen there's a man in that berth of mine said he hotly and he's about ten feet high how am i going to sleep there i'd like to know go and look at him in i went mad too the tall lank man's knees were under his chin his arms were stretched across the bed and his feet were stored comfortably for him i shook him until he awoke and then told him if he wanted the whole berth he would have to pay a dollar my dear sir said the tall man a contract is a contract i have paid you fifty cents for half this berth and as you see i'm occupying it there's the other half pointing to a strip about six inches wide sell that and don't disturb me again and so saying the man with the wart on his face went to sleep again he was abraham lincoln and he never grew any shorter afterward we became great friends and often laughed over the incident could lick any man in the crowd when the enemies of general grant were bothering the president with emphatic and repeated demands that the silent man be removed from command mr lincoln remained firm he would not consent to lose the services of so valuable a soldier grant fights said he in response to the charges made that grant was a butcher a drunkard an incompetent and a general who did not know his business that reminds me of a story president lincoln said one day to a delegation of the grant is no good style out in my state of illinois there was a man nominated for sheriff of the county he was a good man for the office brave determined and honest but not much of an orator in fact he couldn't talk at all he couldn't make a speech to save his life his friends knew he was a man who would preserve the peace of the county and perform the duties devolving upon him all right but the people of the county didn't know it they wanted him to come out boldly on the platform at political meetings and state his convictions and principles they had been used to speeches from candidates and were somewhat suspicious of a man who was afraid to open his mouth at last the candidate consented to make a speech and his friends were delighted the candidate was on hand and when he was called upon advanced to the front and faced the crowd there was a glitter in his eye that wasn't pleasing and the way he walked out to the front of the stand showed that he knew just what he wanted to say feller citizens was his beginning the words spoken quietly i'm not a speaking man i ain't no orator and i never stood up before a lot of people in my life before i'm not going to make no speech except to say that i can lick any man in the crowd his way to a child's heart charles e anthony's one meeting with mr lincoln presents an interesting contrast to those of the men who shared the emancipator's interest in public affairs it was in the latter part of the winter of eighteen sixty one a short time before mr lincoln left for his inauguration at washington judge anthony went to the sherman house where the president-elect was stopping and took with him his son charles then but a little boy 
charles played about the room as a child will looking at whatever interested him for the time and when the interview with his father was over he was ready to go but mr lincoln ever interested in little children called the lad to him and took him upon his great knee my impression of him all the time i had been playing about the room said mr anthony was that he was a terribly homely man i was rather repelled but no sooner did he speak to me than the expression of his face changed completely or rather my view of it changed it at once became kindly and attractive he asked me some questions seeming instantly to find in the turmoil of all the great questions that must have been heavy upon him the very ones that would go to the thought of a child i answered him without hesitation and after a moment he patted my shoulder and said well you'll be a man before your mother yet and put me down i had never before heard the homely old expression and it puzzled me for a time after a moment i understood it but he looked at me while i was puzzling over it and seemed to be amused as no doubt he was the incident simply illustrates the ease and readiness with which lincoln could turn from the mighty questions before the nations give a moment's interested attention to a child and return at once to matters of state left it the women to howl about me don piat one of the brightest newspaper writers in the country told a good story on the president in regard to the refusal of the latter to sanction the death penalty in cases of desertion from the union army there was far more policy in this course said piat than kind feeling to assert the contrary is to detract from lincoln's force of character as well as intellect our war president was not lost in his high admiration of brigadiers and major generals and had a positive dislike for their methods and the despotism upon which an army is based he knew that he was dependent upon volunteers for soldiers and to force upon such men as those the stern discipline of the regular army was to render the service unpopular and it pleased him to be the source of mercy as well as the fountain of honor in this direction i was sitting with general dan tyler of connecticut in the antechamber of the war department shortly after the adjournment of the buell court of inquiry of which we had been members when president lincoln came in from the room of secretary stanton seeing us he said well gentlemen have you any matter worth reporting i think so mr president replied general tyler we had it proven that bragg with less than ten thousand men drove your eighty-three thousand men under buell back from before chattanooga down to the ohio at louisville marched around us twice then doubled us up at perryville and finally got out of the state of kentucky with all his blunder now tyler returned the president what is the meaning of all this what is the lesson don't our men march as well and fight as well as these rebels if not there is a fault somewhere we are all the same family same sort yes there is a lesson replied general tyler we are of the same sort but subject to different handling bragg's little force was superior to our larger number because he had it under control if a man left his ranks he was punished if he deserted he was shot we had nothing of that sort if we attempt to shoot a deserter you pardon him and our army is without discipline 
the president looked perplexed why do you interfere continued general tyler congress has taken from you all responsibility yes answered the president impatiently congress has taken the responsibility and left the women to howl all about me and so he strode away he'd ruin all the other convicts one of the droll stories brought into play by the president as an ally in support of his contention proved most effective politics was rife among the generals of the union army and there was more wire pulling to prevent the advancement of fellow commanders than the laying of plans to defeat the confederates in battle however when it so happened that the name of a particularly unpopular general was sent to the senate for confirmation the protest against his promotion was almost unanimous the nomination didn't seem to please anyone generals who were enemies before conferred together for the purpose of bringing every possible influence to bear upon the senate and securing the rejection of the hated leader's name the president was surprised he had never known such unanimity before you remind me said the president to a delegation of officers which called upon him one day to present a fresh protest to him regarding the nomination of a visit a certain governor paid to the penitentiary of his state it had been announced that the governor would hear the story of every inmate of the institution and was prepared to rectify either by commutation or pardon any wrongs that had been done to any prisoner one by one the convicts appeared before his excellency and each one maintained that he was an innocent man who had been sent to prison because the police didn't like him or his friends and relatives wanted his property or he was too popular etc etc the last prisoner to appear was an individual who was not at all prepossessing his face was against him his eyes were shifty he didn't have the appearance of an honest man and he didn't act like one well asked the governor impatiently i suppose you're innocent like the rest of these fellows no governor was the unexpected answer i was guilty of the crime they charged against me and i got just what i deserved when he had recovered from his astonishment the governor, looking the fellow squarely in the face, remarked with emphasis, I'll have to pardon you, because I don't want to leave so bad a man as you are in the company of such innocent sufferers as I have discovered your fellow convicts to be. You might corrupt them and teach them wicked tricks. As soon as I get back to the capital, I'll have the papers made out. You gentlemen, continued the president, ought to be glad that so bad a man as you represent this officer to be is to get his promotion for then you won't be forced to associate with him and suffer the contamination of his presence and influence i will do all i can to have the senate confirm him and he was confirmed in a hopeless minority the president was often in opposition to the general public sentiment of the north upon certain questions of policy but he bided his time and things usually came out as he wanted them it was lincoln's opinion from the first that apology and reparation to england must be made by the united states because of the arrest upon the high seas of the confederate commissioners mason and slidell the country however the northern states was wild for a conflict with england 
one war at a time quietly remarked the president at a cabinet meeting where he found the majority of his advisers unfavorably disposed to backing down but one member of the cabinet was a really strong supporter of the president in his attitude i am reminded the president said after the various arguments had been put forward by the members of the cabinet of a fellow out in my state of illinois who happened to stray into a church while a revival meeting was in progress to be truthful this individual was not entirely sober and with that instinct which seems to impel all men in his condition to assume a prominent part in proceedings he walked up the aisle to the very front pew all noticed him but he did not care for a while he joined audibly in the singing said amen at the close of the prayers but drowsiness overcoming him he went to sleep before the meeting closed the pastor asked the usual question who are on the lord's side and the congregation arose en masse when he asked who are on the side of the devil the sleeper was about waking up he heard a portion of the interrogatory and seeing the minister on his feet arose i don't exactly understand the question he said but i'll stand by you parson to the last but it seems to me he added that we're in a hopeless minority i'm in a hopeless minority now said the president and i'll have to admit it did ye ask morrissey yet john morrissey the noted prize-fighter was the boss of tammany hall during the civil war period it pleased his fancy to go to congress and his obedient constituents sent him there morrissey was such an absolute despot that the new york city democracy could not make a move without his consent and many of the tammanyites were so afraid of him that they would not even enter into business ventures without consulting the autocrat president lincoln had been seriously annoyed by some of his generals who were afraid to make the slightest move before asking advice from washington one commander in particular was so cautious that he telegraphed the war department upon the slightest pretext the result being that his troops were lying in camp doing nothing when they should have been in the field this general reminds me the president said one day while talking to secretary stanton at the war department of a story i once heard about a tammany man he happened to meet a friend also a member of tammany on the street and in the course of the talk the friend who was beaming with smiles and good nature told the other tammanyite that he was going to be married this first tammany man looked more serious than men usually do upon hearing of the impending happiness of a friend in fact his face seemed to take on a look of anxiety and worry ain't you glad to know that i'm going to be married demanded the second tammanyite somewhat in a huff of course i am was the reply but putting his mouth close to the ear of the other have you asked morrissey yet now this general of whom we are speaking wouldn't dare order out the guard without asking morrissey concluded the president got the laugh on douglas at one time when lincoln and douglas were stumping illinois they met at a certain town and it was agreed that they would have a joint debate douglas was the first speaker and in the course of his talk remarked that in early life his father who he said was an excellent cooper by trade apprenticed him out to learn the cabinet business 
this was too good for lincoln to let pass so when his turn came to reply he said i had understood before that mr douglas had been bound out to learn the cabinet-making business which is all well enough but i was not aware until now that his father was a cooper i have no doubt however that he was one and i am certain also that he was a very good one for here lincoln gently bowed toward douglas he has made one of the best whiskey casts i've ever seen as douglas was a short heavy-set man and occasionally imbibed the pith of the joke was at once apparent and most heartily enjoyed by all on another occasion douglas made a point against lincoln by telling the crowd that when he first knew lincoln he was a grocery keeper and sold whiskey cigars etc mr l he said was a very good bartender this brought the laugh on lincoln whose reply however soon came and then the laugh was on the other side what mr douglas has said gentlemen replied lincoln is true enough i did keep a grocery and i did sell cotton candles and cigars and sometimes whiskey but i remember in those days that mr douglas was one of my best customers i can also say this that i have since left my side of the counter while mr douglas still sticks to his this brought such a storm of cheers and laughter that douglas was unable to reply fixed up a bit for the city folks mrs lincoln knew her husband was not pretty but she liked to have him presentable when he appeared before the public stephen fisk in when lincoln was first inaugurated tells of mrs lincoln's anxiety to have the president-elect smoothed down a little when receiving a delegation that was to greet them upon reaching new york city the train stopped writes mr fisk and through the windows immense crowds could be seen the cheering drowning the blowing off of steam of the locomotive then mrs lincoln opened her handbag and said abraham i must fix you up a bit for these city folks mr lincoln gently lifted her upon the seat before him she parted combed and brushed his hair and arranged his black necktie do i look nice now mother he affectionately asked well you'll do abraham replied mrs lincoln critically so he kissed her and lifted her down from the seat and turned to meet mayor wood courtly and suave and to have his hand shaken by the other new york officials even rebels ought to be saved the reverend mr shrigley of philadelphia a universalist had been nominated for hospital chaplain and a protesting delegation went to washington to see president lincoln on the subject we have called mr president to confer with you in regard to the appointment of mr shrigley of philadelphia as hospital chaplain the president responded oh yes gentlemen i have sent his name to the senate and he will no doubt be confirmed at an early date one of the young men replied we have not come to ask for the appointment but to solicit you to withdraw the nomination ah said lincoln that alters the case but on what grounds do you wish the nomination withdrawn the answer was mr shrigley is not sound in his theological opinions the president inquired on what question is the gentleman unsound response he does not believe in endless punishment not only so sir but he believes that even the rebels themselves will be finally saved is that so inquired the president the members of the committee responded yes yes 
well gentlemen if that be so and there is any way under heaven whereby the rebels can be saved then for god's sake and their sakes let the man be appointed the reverend mr shrigley was appointed and served until the close of the war end of part twenty five part twenty six of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 26. Try to do what seemed best. John M. Palmer, Major General in the Volunteer Army, Governor of the State of Illinois, and United States Senator from the Sucker State, became acquainted with Lincoln in 1839, and the last time he saw the President was at the White House in February 1865. Senator Palmer told the story of his interview as follows i had come to washington at the request of the governor to complain that illinois had been credited with eighteen thousand too few troops i saw mr lincoln one afternoon and he asked me to come again in the morning next morning i sat in the anteroom while several officers were relieved at length i was told to enter the president's room mr lincoln was in the hands of the barber come in palmer he called out come in you're home folks i can shave before you i couldn't before those others and i have to do it sometime we chatted about various matters and at length i said well mr lincoln if anybody had told me that in a great crisis like this the people were going out to a little one-horse town and pick out a one-horse lawyer for president i wouldn't have believed it mr lincoln whirled about in his chair his face white with lather a towel under his chin at first i thought he was angry sweeping the barber away he leaned forward and placing one hand on my knee said neither would i but it was time when a man with a policy would have been fatal to the country i have never had a policy i have simply tried to do what seemed best each day as each day came holding a candle to the czar england was anything but pleased when the czar alexander of russia showed his friendship for the united states by sending a strong fleet to this country with the accompanying suggestion that uncle sam through his representative president lincoln could do whatever he saw fit with the ironclads and the munitions of war they had stowed away in their holds london punch on november seventh eighteen sixty three printed the cartoon shown on this page the text under the picture reading in this way holding a candle to the blank much the same thing of course this was a covert sneer intended to convey the impression that president lincoln in order to secure the support and friendship of the emperor of russia as long as the war of the rebellion lasted was willing to do all sorts of menial offices even to the extent of holding the candle and lighting his most gracious majesty the white czar to his imperial bedchamber it is a somewhat remarkable fact that the emperor alexander who tendered inestimable aid to the president of the united states was the lincoln of russia having given freedom to millions of serfs in his empire and further than that he was like lincoln the victim of assassination he was literally blown to pieces by a bomb thrown under his carriage while riding through the streets near the winter palace at st petersburg nashville was not surrendered 
i was told a mighty good story said the president one day at a cabinet meeting by colonel granville moody the fighting methodist parson as they used to call him in tennessee i happened to meet moody in philadelphia where he was attending a conference the story was about andy johnson and general buell colonel moody happened to be in nashville the day it was reported that buell had decided to evacuate the city the rebels strongly reinforced were said to be within two days march of the capital of course the city was greatly excited moody said he went in search of johnson at the edge of the evening and found him at his office closeted with two gentlemen who were walking the floor with him one on each side as he entered they retired leaving him alone with johnson who came up to him manifesting intense feeling and said moody we are sold out buell is a traitor he is going to evacuate the city and in forty-eight hours we will all be in the hands of the rebels then he commenced pacing the floor again twisting his hands and chafing like a caged tiger utterly insensible to his friend's entreaties to become calm and suddenly he turned and said moody can you pray that is my business sir as a minister of the gospel returned the colonel well moody i wish you would pray said johnson and instantly both went down upon their knees at opposite sides of the room as the prayer waxed fervent johnson began to respond in true methodist style presently he crawled over on his hands and knees to moody's side and put his arms over him manifesting the deepest emotion closing the prayer with a hearty amen from each they arose johnson took a long breath and said with emphasis moody i feel better shortly afterward he asked will you stand by me certainly i will was the answer well moody i can depend upon you you are one in a hundred thousand he then commenced pacing the floor again suddenly he wheeled the current of his thought having changed and said oh moody i don't want you to think i have become a religious man because i ask you to pray i am sorry to say it i am not and never pretended to be religious no one knows this better than you but moody there is one thing about it i do believe in almighty god and i believe also in the bible and i say damn me if nashville shall be surrendered and nashville was not surrendered he couldn't wait for the colonel general fisk attending a reception at the white house saw waiting in the anteroom a poor old man from tennessee and learned that he had been waiting three or four days to get an audience on which probably depended the life of his son under sentence of death for some military offense general fisk wrote his case in outline on a card and sent it in with a special request that the president would see the man in a moment the order came and past impatient senators governors and generals the old man went he showed his papers to mr lincoln who said he would look into the case and give him the result next day the old man in an agony of apprehension looked up into the president's sympathetic face and actually cried out tomorrow may be too late my son is under sentence of death it ought to be decided now his streaming tears told how much he was moved come said mr lincoln wait a bit and i'll tell you a story and then he told the old man general fist's story about the swearing driver as follows 
the general had begun his military life as a colonel and when he raised his regiment in missouri he proposed to his men that he should do all the swearing of the regiment they assented and for months no instance was known of the violation of the promise the colonel had a teamster named john todd who as roads were not always the best had some difficulty in commanding his temper and his tongue john happened to be driving a mule team through a series of mud holes a little worse than usual when unable to restrain himself any longer he burst forth into a volley of energetic oaths the colonel took notice of the offence and brought john to account john said he didn't you promise to let me do all the swearing of the regiment yes i did colonel he replied but the fact was the swearing had to be done then or not at all and you weren't there to do it as he told the story the old man forgot his boy and both the president and his listener had a hearty laugh together at its conclusion then he wrote a few words which the old man read and in which he found new occasion for tears but the tears were tears of joy for the words saved the life of his son lincoln pronounced this story funny the president was heard to declare one day that the story given below was one of the funniest he ever heard one of general fremont's batteries of eight para guns supported by a squadron of horse commanded by major richards was in sharp conflict with a battery of the enemy near at hand shells and shot were flying thick and fast when the commander of the battery a german one of fremont's staff rode suddenly up to the cavalry exclaiming in loud and excited terms bring up the jackasses bring up the jackasses for god's sake hurry up the jackasses the necessity of this order though not quite apparent will be more obvious when it is remembered that jackasses are mules carry mountain howitzers which are fired from the backs of that much abused but valuable animal and the immediate occasion for the shackasses was that two regiments of rebel infantry were at that moment discovered ascending a hill immediately behind our batteries the shackasses with the howitzers loaded with grape and canister were soon on the ground the mules squared themselves as they well knew how for the shock a terrific volley was poured into the advancing column which immediately broke and retreated two hundred and seventy-eight dead bodies were found in the ravine next day piled closely together as they fell the effects of that volley from the backs of the shackasses joke was on lincoln mr lincoln enjoyed a joke at his own expense said he in the days when i used to be in the circuit i was accosted in the cars by a stranger who said excuse me sir but i have an article in my possession which belongs to you how is that i asked considerably astonished the stranger took a jackknife from his pocket this knife said he was placed in my hand some years ago with the injunction that i was to keep it until i had found a man uglier than myself i have carried it from that time to this allow me to say sir that i think you are fairly entitled to the property the other one was worse it so happened that an official of the war department had escaped serious punishment for a rather flagrant offence by showing where grosser irregularities existed in the management of a certain bureau of the department 
so valuable was the information furnished that the culprit who gave the snap away was not even discharged that reminds me the president said when the case was laid before him of a story about daniel webster when the latter was a boy when quite young at school daniel was one day guilty of a gross violation of the rules he was detected in the act and called up by the teacher for punishment this was to be the old-fashioned furling of the hand his hands happened to be very dirty knowing this on the way to the teacher's desk he spit upon the palms of his right hand wiping it off upon the side of his pantaloons give me your hand sir said the teacher very sternly out went the right hand partly cleansed the teacher looked at it a moment and said daniel if you will find another hand in this schoolroom as filthy as that i will let you off this time instantly from behind the back came the left hand here it is sir was the ready reply that will do said the teacher for this time you can take your seat sir i'd have been missed by myself the president did not consider that every soldier who ran away in battle or did not stand firmly to receive a bayonet charge was a coward he was of opinion that self-preservation was the first law of nature but he didn't want this statute construed too liberally by the troops at the same time he took occasion to illustrate a point he wished to make by a story in connection with a darkey who was a member of the ninth illinois infantry regiment this regiment was one of those engaged in the capture of fort donelson it behaved gallantly and lost as heavily as any upon the hurricane deck of one of our gunboats said the president in telling the story i saw an elderly darkey with a very philosophical and retrospective cast of countenance squatted upon his bundle toasting his shins against the chimney and apparently plunged into a state of profound meditation as the negro rather interested me i made some inquiries and found that he had really been with the ninth illinois infantry at donelson and began to ask him some questions about the capture of the place were you in the fight had a little taste of it sir stood your ground did you nah sir i runs run at the first fire did you yes sir and would have run sooner had i knowed it war coming why that wasn't very creditable to your courage right in my line sir cookin's my profession well but have you no regard for your reputation reputation's nothing to me but a side of life do you consider your life worth more than other people's it's worth more to me sir then you must value it very highly yes sir it does more than all dis wood more than a million of dollars sir for what would that be worth to a man with the breath out of him self-preservation am the first law with me but why should you act upon a different rule from other men different men set different values in their laws mine is not in de market but if you lost it you would have the satisfaction of knowing that you died for your country dat no satisfaction when feeling's gone then patriotism and honor are nothing to you nothing whatever sir i regard them as among the vanities if our soldiers were like you traitors might have broken up the government without resistance 
yes sir thar would have been no help for it i wouldn't put my life into scale against any government that ever existed for no government could place the loss to me do you think any of your company would have missed you if you had been killed maybe not sir a dead white man ain't much to these soldiers let alone a dead nigger but i'd a miss myself and that was the pint with me i only tell this story concluded the president in order to illustrate the result of the tactics of some of the union generals who would be sadly missed by themselves if no one else if they ever got out of the army it all depended upon the effect president lincoln and some members of his cabinet were with a part of the army some distance south of the national capital at one time when secretary of war stanton remarked that just before he left washington he had received a telegram from general mitchell in alabama general mitchell asked instructions in regard to a certain emergency that had arisen the secretary said he did not precisely understand the emergency as explained by general mitchell but had answered back all right go ahead now he said as he turned to mr lincoln mr president if i have made an error in not understanding him correctly i will have to get you to countermand the order well exclaimed president lincoln that is very much like the happening on the occasion of a certain horse sale i remember that took place at the crossroads down in kentucky when i was a boy a particularly fine horse was to be sold and the people in large numbers had gathered together they had a small boy to ride the horse up and down while the spectators examined the horse's points at last one man whispered to the boy as he went by look here boy ain't that horse got the splints the boy replied mister i don't know what the splints is but if it's good for him he has got it if it ain't good for him he ain't got it now said president lincoln if this was good for mitchell it was all right but if it was not i have got to countermand it too swift to stay in the army there were strange queer odd things and happenings in the army at times but as a rule the president did not allow them to worry him he had enough to bother about a quartermaster having neglected to present his accounts in proper shape and the matter being deemed of sufficient importance to bring it to the attention of the president the latter remarked now this instance reminds me of a little story i heard only a short time ago a certain general's purse was getting low and he said it was probable he might be obliged to draw on his banker for some money how much do you want father asked his son who had been with him a few days i think i shall send for a couple of hundred replied the general why father said his son very quietly i can let you have it you can let me have it where did you get so much money i won it playing draw poker with your staff sir replied the youth the earliest morning train bore the young man toward his home and i've been wondering if that boy and that quartermaster had happened to meet at the same table admired the strong man governor hoyt of wisconsin tells a story of mr lincoln's great admiration for physical strength mr lincoln in eighteen fifty nine made a speech at the wisconsin state agricultural fair after the speech in company with the governor he strolled about the grounds looking at the exhibits 
they came to a place where a professional strongman was tossing cannonballs in the air and catching them on his arms and juggling with them as though they were as light as baseballs mr lincoln had never before seen such an exhibition and he was greatly surprised and interested when the performance was over governor hoyt seeing mr lincoln's interest asked him to go up and be introduced to the athlete he did so and as he stood looking down amusingly on the man who was very short and evidently wondering that one so much smaller than he could be so much stronger he suddenly broke out with one of his quaint speeches why he said why i could lick salt off the top of your hat wished the army charged like that a prominent volunteer officer who early in the war was on duty in washington and often carried reports to secretary stanton at the war department told a characteristic story on president lincoln said he i was with several other young officers also carrying reports to the war department and one morning we were late in this instance we were in a desperate hurry to deliver the papers in order to be able to catch the train returning to camp on the winding dark staircase of the old war department which many will remember it was our misfortune while taking about three stairs at a time to run a certain head like a catapult into the body of the president striking him in the region of the right lower vest pocket the usual surprised and relaxed grunt of a man thus assailed came promptly we quickly sent an apology in the direction of the dimly seen form feeling that the ungracious shock was expensive even to the humblest clerk in the department a second glance revealed to us the president as the victim of the collision then followed a special tender of ten thousand pardons and the president's reply one's enough i wish the whole army would charge like that uncle abraham had everything ready you can't do anything with them southern fellows the old man at the table was saying if they get whipped they'll retreat to them southern swamps and bayous along with the fishes and crocodiles you haven't got the fish nets made that'll catch em look here old gentleman remarked president lincoln who was sitting alongside we've got just the nets for traitors in the bayous or anywhere hey what nets bayonets and uncle abraham pointed his joke with his fork spearing a fish-ball savagely not as smooth as he looked mr lincoln's skill in parrying troublesome questions was wonderful once he received a call from congressman john ganson of buffalo one of the ablest lawyers in new york who although a democrat supported all of mr lincoln's war measures mr ganson wanted explanations mr ganson was very bald with a perfectly smooth face he had a most direct and aggressive way of stating his views or of demanding what he thought he was entitled to he said mr lincoln i have supported all of your measures and think i am entitled to your confidence we are voting and acting in the dark in congress and i demand to know think i have the right to ask and to know what is the present situation and what are the prospects and conditions of the several campaigns and armies mr lincoln looked at him critically for a moment and then said ganson how clean you shave most men would have been offended but ganson was too broad and intelligent a man not to see the point 
and retire at once satisfied from the field a small crop chauncey m depew says that mr lincoln told him the following story which he claimed was one of the best two things he ever originated he was trying a case in illinois where he appeared for a prisoner charged with aggravated assault and battery the complainant had told a horrible story of the attack which his appearance fully justified when the district attorney handed the witness over to mr lincoln for cross-examination mr lincoln said he had no testimony and unless he could break down the complainant's story he saw no way out he had come to the conclusion that the witness was a bumptious man who rather prided himself upon his smartness in repartee and so after looking at him for some minutes he said well my friend how much ground did you and my client here fight over the fellow answered oh about six acres well said mr lincoln don't you think that this is an almighty small crop of fight to gather from such a big piece of ground the jury laughed the court and district attorney and complainant all joined in and the case was last out of court never regret what you don't write a simple remark one of the party might make would remind mr lincoln of an apropos story secretary of the treasury chase happened to remark oh i'm so sorry that i did not write a letter to mr so-and-so before i left home president lincoln promptly responded chase never regret what you don't write it is what you do write that you are often called upon to feel sorry for a vain general in an interview between president lincoln and petroleum v nasby the name came up of a recently deceased politician of illinois whose merit was blemished by great vanity his funeral was very largely attended if general blank had known how big a funeral he would have had said mr lincoln he would have died years ago deathbed repentance a senator who was calling upon mr lincoln mentioned the name of a most virulent and dishonest official one who though very brilliant was very bad it's a good thing for b said mr lincoln that there is such a thing as a deathbed repentance no cause for pride a member of congress from ohio came into mr lincoln's presence in a state of unutterable intoxication and sinking into a chair exclaimed in tones that welled up fuzzy through the gallon or more of whiskey that he contained oh why should <laughs> the spirit of mortal be proud my dear sir said the president regarding him closely i see no reason whatever End of part twenty six Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.